Hi. Hello. It's fall. It's fall, y'all. Where did summer go? Oh, wait, I know where. I spent the entirety of summer in my home, away from people. The whole thing. It was very sad. Most of it. Sometimes I went out to get, like, groceries, and that was scary. I did not like that. This one time, I went out and got carry-out food. That was really exciting. Oh, yeah. I've mostly been sending my husband to do those sorts of errands because he's of stronger constitution than I am. So if one of us is going to get sick, it's probably better if he does than if I do. I mean, but if he gets sick, you both get sick because you're married. Well, well, we'll just we'll see. We'll see. We'll wait and see. I'll report back if and when COVID enters this household. I mean, hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully it doesn't. Yeah. So reminder, everyone, wash your hands. Wear your mask. Wear your mask. A real Do hand mask. sanitizer. Not a, a real mask. mask. Not one made of lace. Not one made of lace. That's bullshit. Yep. Don't touch your face and uh, yeah. avoid gatherings of, of 10 or more people mm-hmm. or, or whatever your local regulations require. But I would I would say 10 or more people is enough. That's enough. Mm hmm. And if you live in a college town like I do, run, uh, you're screwed. Run, run, run. I don't know what to say. Right. <laughs> well, speaking of college towns, your story is not about a college town today, but it's about a town. It's about a town. Um, this is actually a pretty popular one. I, I didn't know that this was a popular one <laughs> that is kind of well known. Um, thanks to a certain TV show that'll come up later. Um, because I, I have not watched all of the episodes of said TV show. Um, so I didn't realize this was one of their featured episodes. So I did like a bunch of research because I thought it was like a cool thing that I read in like this little article. And I like read through the whole thing and started kind of take notes and stuff. And I got really into it. And then I started looking for other sources and a Wikipedia article for a TV show came up. And here we are. So but I liked it enough that I just I resisted the urge to pick a lesser known story and just kind of plowed ahead with this one because because it's just kind of interesting and I really like it. Um, Okay, well, I'm totally cool with that. It's got a lot of gossip. Um, So this one is probably going to give it away for a few folks when I say the name. This one uh, takes place in Circleville, Ohio in the 1970s. And I guess if you're listening, you've already seen the title. This is about the Circleville Letters. Or the Circleville Letter Writer. Tell me about Circleville, Ohio. So Circleville, Ohio is a town in Ohio. Um, (laughs) All I need to know. Yeah. So in the 1970s, the the population of Circleville was around 11,000. It's actually not that much higher than that today. It is is a town of less than 20,000 people. So it's kind of a it's a small city. So Ohio is a manufacturing state in the Midwest. Um, There's a few DuPont plants there. um, Fastenal, PPG, a bunch of these like kind of metal manufacturers, chemical manufacturers, chemical plants. They have 
plants in Ohio. Uh, Circleville is actually home to the largest DuPont plant in Ohio, um, and they make mylar there, like mylar reflective materials and, and insulations. The Sofidel Group is now the largest manufacturer in the city, and they make toilet paper since 2018. But that's not relevant to the story. Point is, it's a tiny town that has a super big manufacturing footprint. So most of the people in the town work at the plants or work, you know, at like the general store or things like that, where there's, there's, it's not really like a big city with a bustling industry. It is a plant. It's not bumping. Yeah. yeah, It's not bumping. It's, it's a, it's a small city and everybody there kind of knows each other, at least knows people in their, you know, their kind of sub communities of which there are not many. And everybody works at one of the like five local plants there. Um, so it's kind of a small idyllic town. There's one elementary school, one middle school and one high school in the town. It is. Oh, man. I know. right? <laughs> so prior to this story that I'm about to tell you, just to kind of give you a setup, some excitement. The most interesting thing that happened was a bombing that happened in 1967. Um, in, in which a guy named Lee Holbrook was upset with his wife Phyllis for for filing for divorce, and he decided to bomb the drugstore she worked at, killing himself and four others. That's not a mystery. Was she killed? No, she wasn't at work that day. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's. I can see why she filed for divorce. Right. So <laughs> I'll post the article for that story in the sources if you want to read more about it. It's kind of interesting. But prior to that, for like 100 years, nothing else eventful happened in this town. This is not like this town is not on the radar. The The, the article for Circleville, Ohio is like it's about DuPont. It's about this guy. And then it's a like a big part about the Circleville letters. Um, so it's a it. By all accounts, it's a tiny town, peaceful. It's a Midwestern community, which means that there's a lot of gossip, but Wood Town doesn't have that. So in 1967, um, where, where our story begins, uh, a, school, a local school bus driver named Mary Gillespie was, uh, was uh, you know, just going about her life. She's married. They've got a couple of kids. Um, and she got a letter in the mail. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A letter? Oh. Yeah. She oh, got a, joy. Right. Um, the, was her car warranty about to expire? Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, kind of. It was actually a, a kind of a threatening letter um, oh. that accused her of having an affair with the local the local school district superintendent Gordon Massey, um, which small school district, right? Remember, tiny community. She's a school bus driver, mm -hmm. so like everyone knows Gordon, everyone knows Mary, all everyone's kids know Mary. And these letters basically just started kind of accusing her of things that, you know, nobody outside of like her and a very small, close-knit group of people could have known, right? So is it true? Uh, we don't know. Um, but I don't know. In my opinion, it doesn't really matter, right? Nobody's sex life warrants a strange, threatening, harassing letter, but... Okay, but it just adds some intrigue if it's true right. versus right. if it isn't true. Because it's like, if it's not true, well, just anybody could be saying anything. But if it is true... Right. Who, you know what I mean? Who feels like this needs to come to life? So, I mean, is it threatening, like, you're having this affair and I'm going to 
blow up your school bus or is it like how like what kind of threats are we talking about so so here's one of the notable letters this is like one of the ones that that people who know about this story know really well and it just it it's it's a letter that's written in this like faux handwriting it's all cap all block letters you know like lined paper it's mm-hmm. it's clear that the letter writer I, i'll put a picture in the sources but it's clear that the letter writer was like doing these big block letters to try to disguise their handwriting and they were like taking okay. up two full lines like per letter so like every line of text takes up two lines on lined on lined writing paper okay i see what you're saying yeah um so it says uh one of the one, one of the more notable ones says stay away from massey don't lie when questioned about knowing him i know where you live i've been observing your house and know you have children this is no joke please take it serious everyone concerned has been notified everything will be over soon right what so like obviously obviously they know where she lives because they sent a letter to her right house in the mail anyway um so all of them were like in this super like kind of pseudo threatening tone um very clearly written to hide the the letter writer's identity um where's the postmark it's from the is town. it from was it sent in the town okay yes, yes. Uh, most of them okay. were sent in the town um this kind of balloons up but i think the first few were sent in the town uh mary just hid them and saved them she didn't tell anyone about them until her husband ron gillespie also got a letter in the mail and this oh, one no. was a direct threat this Ooh. this one this one told him to end the to end the uh the affair or die it was like a direct <laughs> threat at ron like end your wife's affair or die yes um i couldn't find an an actual like image of this letter so i don't know what the actual text was but multiple sources said that this this was the first letter that was sent to somebody other than mary but none so far the superintendent hasn't gotten any letters right not that we know of well that seems fishy as hell right um (laughs) mr superintendent right so so the letter writer keeps sending letters to both of them now and and they're basically just the same content over and over again same stuff um and two weeks later the letter writer uh uh, sent the first letter that was addressed to both mary and ron and it said gillespie you have two you have had two weeks and done nothing admit the truth and inform and inform the school board if not i will broadcast it on cbs posters signs billboards until the truth comes out a little weird cbs so weird i know it's like very threatening and it's like it's very odd like tell the school board like the school board's gonna care it's the 70s so maybe they would i don't know um right well and also it seems you know it's not like tell his wife Mm -hmm. tell you know what i mean it just seems weird that it's like specifically focusing on their careers on their jobs as opposed to like you know tell his wife or you know tell his family or whatever it's like tell the school board and like what are you thinking that she's gonna get fired that he's gonna get fired like tell your parents you're right like what is the what is the you know outcome hoping here and it's interesting too to hear like you know oh i'll put out billboards and put up posters and call cbs or whatever because all of these things you're not really going to be able to do anonymously in a small town in the 70s yeah so it's just it's interesting to hear i don't know because clearly whoever this is so far doesn't want their 
they're going to, you know, lengths to keep their identity hidden. But if you're making these, you know, grand threats, like, are you going to back them up? Are you going to put the money where your mouth is or not? Right. Exactly. So um, and, and again, I don't think it matters necessarily, but Mary denies having the affair. Up until this point, um, I mean, she still denies actually having an affair like no one should cheat on their partner. Sure. But it's not really relevant in like the face of like this very threatening stalking behavior. Right. But like who could have known about right. this? Who has a stake in this? Right. Um, so. The couple talk it over and they decide to enlist some outside help. Um, they go to Ron's sister, Karen, and her husband, Paul Fresher, uh, and they, they kind of bring him in on the secret. And um, in some sources, on the down low. yeah, on the down low, some sources said they brought in other members of the family. Some said it was just Paul and Karen. Some said it was just Karen. This one's kind of all over the place. So this is take the next few uh, uh, beats here as, as semi-apocryphal. These things may right. prob- hopefully happen this way. I picked the versions that both seemed the most compelling and were cited the most number of times. <laughs> um, That's fair. So Paul is an important character here. Just remember Paul Fresher. He's going to kind of be our, our, our man... Our, 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 our central focal point for the next little while or for, so for he becomes like the private eye of the family in some ways. Yes. <laughs> in many ways. No. Um, so anyway, both, <laughs> okay. both couples sit down and they brainstorm who, who could have been behind this? Like who, who's doing this? Who's writing these letters? Um, and the only name they come up with is, is one of Mary's fellow school bus drivers, a guy by name, by the name of David Longberry, um, who Mary said had been hitting on him and she kept turning down his advances. Uh, and he was a little bit of a weird guy and they think that he might've been holding a grudge. So he wrote some threatening letters. Um, now, like you said, the school board is an interesting point there because David and Mary both work for the school board. And so does, so does, uh, uh, uh the, the other half of her alleged affair, the, the superintendent Gordon Massey. Right. So if it's one of her coworkers, it kind of maybe makes a little bit of sense. Right. Um, so now they decide to do something interesting. And I think this is actually kind of genius in a, in a dumb way. Um, okay. I'm afraid. Right. So let's say, you know, someone who is like sending you anonymous, threatening, paranoid letters that are full of accusations and threats. Okay, I'm getting letters. Okay, yes. Right. How how do you and pretend it's also the 1970s? Um, confronting them directly is you know potentially dangerous in a small town. Um, anyway, anywhere, but um, confronting them could potentially be dangerous because you don't necessarily know like if they're writing threatening letters, will they actually carry out those threats? You don't know. The police. Right, I don't know. Right. The police, as we know in the past, have had limited success with these types of situations depending on circumstances plus it's the 1970s um plus they don't necessarily want to like broadcast this alleged affair to the town right so what's the best way to handle it what's the best way to stop this without you know completely both outing themselves and causing a big problem for everyone they know or potentially exposing themselves to harm well they leave yeah. Move to another planet. Leaves, yeah, move to another planet's a good idea. What they decide leave to do... Leave the solar system. <laughs> just leave. Just, just, just leave. <laughs> put it away. Anyway, so what do they decide to do? I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh, they have Paul sit down and send anonymous, rambling, paranoid letters to David Longberry. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're like, we're like, I don't know, 50% sure it's probably this weird guy. Let's just do it back. What what could possibly go wrong? Right. Well, if like this guy thinks letter writing is effective and like a, an effective thing and is paranoid enough to do these things and is that unhinged, maybe if he gets his own, he'll stop. Right. Um, so anyway, they, they send him They're handwritten and they're full of things like we know who you are and we know what you've done. And if you don't stop, we're coming to get you. We're watching. We you. know who you killed last summer. Right. Right. And, and, and they also like said very directly, stop sending letters. There's no need for violence. So like they weren't completely off the deep end. They were just trying to get him to stop sending those letters in his own language in a way. Right. <laughs> assumption is that it's him doing it right that is a big assumption um so i i think like on. right so as, assuming that the first assumption is true i that's kind of an elegant way to handle that right you know he's never gonna go tell a bunch of people if this is actually the guy that he's getting these letters right. because he's sending these weird letters. like it just i don't know i thought that was like a stroke of genius i thought it was absolutely hilarious that, that they decided to do that but as far as we know it worked he stopped sending letters for a little while. For a little while. Yeah, he was like, man, I didn't expect them to beat me at my own game. I got to regroup. Right. So um, remember, it's 1976. Um, several months go by um, and, and we're into 1990 or 1977. Rather, they stop receiving letters. If David is the one sending them, he stopped sending them for now. Uh and in August of 1977, uh, Mary took a trip. I couldn't find out where she went, but she took a trip, maybe to visit some family, but she, she was out of town. Um, on August 19th of 1977, Ron was home alone with the kids and the phone rang. Um, oh. Yeah. Now, now again, the, the sources here get a little bit, there's, there's some divergence in the sourcing here. Um, but what we do know is that that Ron got really upset by whoever was on the phone call, that it was a relatively short phone call, that he grabbed his gun and walked out the door. Um, um. Right. Uh, so some sources I read mentioned that that the person on the phone was the letter writer, was was the writer of the, the letters from the previous year and that his kids maybe mentioned something about that. Other sources said that that's like purely an assumption. We can assume that it was the letter writer. Well, we really can't. All we really know is whoever he was talking to made him really upset. He grabbed his gun. Anyway. Yeah, like mad enough that he grabbed a gun to leave the house. Yeah, right. In any case, Ron wasn't found until several hours later that evening. Um, I think it was after 10 p.m. at night. Uh, he was in the driver's seat of his truck, which was smashed into a lonely tree in a lonely intersection not too far from their house, and he was dead. What the fuck? Yeah. What? Yeah, so so, what? so Ron Gillespie, Mary's husband, is dead. Um, like, he killed himself? No, no, he, he crashed his truck into the tree. Um, so toxicology reported he had a blood, blood alcohol content of 0.16. Uh, which is twice the legal limit and pretty drunk. That's pretty, that's pretty drunk. Is he drunk when he left the house? We don't, th I don't think so. If he was, he would have had to find a way to keep drinking while he was out because it was, it was literally several hours later. He left like in the middle of the day and his body was found at like 1030 at night. What is happening? How old are their kids at this point too? 
that he just like left them in the house alone. I guess it was the 70s. Yeah, it was the 70s. And I think they're like preteen ish. OK, I didn't know if these were like very young children, like he left no. his 12 month old and 18 month year old, whatever, no, you yeah. know, Yeah, 18 month year old. Uh, no, no, he didn't. It was it, <laughs> you know, whatever. You know what I meant? Leave yeah. me alone. I think they're they're like teen preteens. They're, they're old enough to be home whole alone. Um, they were obviously concerned that their father never came back, but the kids are fine. Um, so so he was way he too drunk. his gun in the car. Yeah, and that's the really interesting thing. His gun was on him, and police said that a single bullet had been fired from the gun that day. Uh, There was only one bullet missing. The gun had definitely been recently fired, but there were no reports of gunfire anywhere near the town, so he didn't shoot anyone, or at least if he did, they were never reported injured, missing, or murdered. And he's dead behind the wheel, absolutely drunk. What in the hell? What is happening in this town? Right. It's weird. So to recap, Ron is dead after receiving a mysterious phone call. He grabbed his gun. He left the house at some point. Yeah. Yeah. At some point during the day, he got drunk, fired his gun once, and then drove his truck into the tree and died. Like, okay, maybe we don't know. Or maybe you don't know off the top of your head. But like, what day of the week did this happen on? Uh, Was this like a weekday? Was this like the weekend? It was a Friday. Okay. But like... It's just weird. This is very weird. It's very, it's very weird. Say it again. This is weird. Okay. So So, the police are obviously involved at this point, right? Yes. And and they rule his death an accident because he was obviously drunk driving. Um, now this is apocryphal. The local sheriff, Dwight Radcliffe, who we'll get into a little more later, uh, apparently told a friend in town, there's more to that case than meets the eye. But then when asked later, he denied ever saying that. So... Whatever. Now, remember the superintendent of the school district, Gordon Massey, who Mary was accused Mm -hmm. of having an affair with. Mm -hmm. In the years after Ron's death, he got divorced and him and Mary started dating. Oh, my God. What? So Mary maintains that the relationship didn't start until after Ron's death. Um, Some sources said that Mary's affair hadn't started until after the first letter had arrived. Um, which obviously would have been like a year before her husband's death. Um, but I couldn't really. Because she's like, I'm getting these threatening letters accusing me of having an affair with this guy. I'm not having an affair yet, but why not start? Right, right. Why it's... not just make it real? <laughs> it's like, to be fair, Mary is a victim here in every sense of the word, but it's still that's odd behavior. Right. Like that's right. that's weird. Um Especially considering okay. like these weird letters and the strange circumstances of her husband's death and his behavior just before his death, like it's it's all weird. Um, what if Massey orchestrated this all and he was like, "I want to have an affair with Mary, so I'm going to start sending her these letters accusing her of having an affair with me." And reverse psychology will make her do it. Right, and then I'm going to call, and then her, I'll husband. call her husband, yeah. lure yeah. him out, get him drunk. He'll crash and die, and then Mary and I can be together. I'll get a divorce. It'll be great. Frankly, it's genius. Um, So during this time in the... More letters? More letters. Other residents in this town started receiving their own letters. Um, None that directly threatened other residents, but uh, many of them accused Sheriff Radcliffe of covering up the real circumstances of Ron Gillespie's death. Um, they were sent to elected officials around town as well as, as Mary and her family. Most of it was vague, vulgar, conspiratorial, um, urging, you know, 
other people in town, elected officials, to look into the circumstances of Ron Gillespie's death. Um, they accused the sheriff of putting an innocent man behind bars and blatantly stated that Mary had killed her husband because of the affair, um, despite the fact that she wasn't even in town when Ron died. Like, <laughs> these letters keep coming, and they are they are off the rails in every every measurable way. Are they um, from the same person, or are they from, like, multiple people? We can assume they're from the same person, because they all have the same handwriting and style, but we don't know for sure. And none of them had fingerprints. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So we're going to skip ahead a few years. Mary is dating, um, uh, Gordon Massey. Uh, Ron's case has been put to bed. Um, people are getting these weird letters, but there's no like direct threats anymore. No one else has died. Um, so in February of 1983, February in winter of 1983 in Ohio, it's snowy, it's, you know, basically the coldest months of the season. Uh, Mary was driving on her normal school bus route at 3.30 in the afternoon, and she saw a sign that had her daughter's name with a very vulgar threat. I'm just going to leave it at that. Her teenage Oh my daughter. God. Yeah. That's okay. Come on. Whoever this is, like, you're going to threaten, like, it's already shitty enough to be threatening an adult, right? But, like, then you start saying shit about into somebody's child. That's, come on. Right. Um, So, Mary was, of course, horrified. She pulled her school bus over to grab the sign and, you know, take it with her so that it wouldn't be out there in the world. She ripped the sign down. And she was surprised to find that it was attached to a piece of twine, a uh, piece of string. The, the piece of twine led to a small cord- cardboard box that was attached to another post that was behind the sign. She grabbed the box and the sign and the twine, <laughs> took it all into the bus. And- I thought you were going to say there was a bomb attached to it and it blew up. Uh, close. Uh, she opened the box and she was surprised to find a 25 caliber pistol, uh, with a crudely made trigger pull mechanism attached to the string that she had just violently yanked on. And it was pure luck that it failed to fire when she took the bait. What the fuck is happening in this town, Matt? Right. So of course <laughs> what she, is happening? she goes home and she calls the cops, right? <laughs> right. Well, and also you have to think too. I mean, I guess that I don't know what her bus route looked like and how remote of an area this was. But like, if I'm just a townsfolk and I see something like that, I might try to pull it down to you, even if it's not my child. Like, I might still see something like that and be like, what the fuck? And like, you know, walk up and yank it. So this person is just being fast and loose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like Every sense of the word here. Yeah. Like, like this was definitely targeting Mary, but it. Like collateral damage apparently was no issue. Right. Right. Like anyone <laughs> could have done that. Right. Um, so in, and this is my assumption. My assumption is that they knew when Mary's route was and they knew exactly when to put the sign up so that hopefully she would be the only one that would see it. It's not like they put it up at 7 a.m. Right. And let everybody else. Probably not. Yeah. But still. Right. But still. And right. you gotta wonder too if they were like in the area still, right? And yeah. like saw that it didn't go off, and they were like, "Fuck." Yeah, 
Yeah. So anyway, she she goes she goes home. She calls the police. Um, now the the nice thing about guns, at least in America in the 1970s, is that they're traceable usually. Um, so the gun didn't have any fingerprints, but the serial number had been filed off. Of course. Luckily, again, though the assailant is about as good as filing serial numbers off of things as they are at making booby traps that work. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, the one one article I read was really funny because it said they did lab tests to determine the serial number. I'm like, they probably just put it under a microscope or like put some buffing compound or something on it to get the serial number to come out right. Like, right. Like, right. I doubt they did any lab tests, but anyway, they got the they got the serial number off of it. Um, they look up the the registered owner of the gun and they go arrest him. Um, can you guess who it is? Can I guess who it is? Is can, it? Can you guess who it is? Is it Paul? Wow, that's a good guess. It's Paul Fresher's gun. Uh, <laughs> Fucking Paul! So to, to remind everybody of kind of the mechanics of the family here, you have Mary, who started receiving the letters first, her husband, Ron, who died in a in a drunk driving accident. Mysterious circumstances abound. Later, after the letters, yes. After the letters or during the letters. Um, you have the, the sister, Karen, uh, and Paul, who is the one who wrote those weird letters back to the first now, letter whose writer. brother is Paul? Paul is... So Ron's sister is Karen. Karen's husband is Paul. Okay, so by marriage. Right, so... Okay, related. Right. So, oh, so, oh, so, interesting. Yeah, so for Mary, this is her brother-in-law or... Brother, former brother-in-law. Former brother-in-law, even more double former brother-in-law because Ron had just gone through a very messy divorce with Karen. Um, Probably because he's I'm sorry, a Paul, <laughs> Paul, Paul Fresher had just gone through a messy divorce with Karen. Sorry, Ron is dead. Ron did not go through any such divorces because he was dead. Because he was, because he died. He parted. Yes, okay. He till death to us parted. So Interesting, okay. Yeah, so, so Paul, it's Paul Fresher's gun. Now, Paul, in the divorce, had won custody of their children, had won their house, and most of their possessions. I don't know the circumstances of that, but that there's an insinuation in there that I'll let the listener determine. Uh, but in any case, Karen didn't get her kit children, didn't get her house, didn't get most of her possessions, and she was living in a trailer on Mary Gillespie's property. So, it's Paul's gun. Now, Paul admitted that the gun was his, but he said that he kept it in his garage, and he hadn't checked on it or fired it in years, and that it could have potentially been stolen. He says could have easily been stolen by Karen, his ex-wife, she's the most likely suspect in his mind. Who just leaves a weapon in their garage like that, though? Midwest, 1970s, man. I guess, but... I'm inclined to believe Paul here because the gun misfired or didn't fire for whatever reason. Guns rust. (laughs) If this gun was sitting in the garage for years, it's actually kind of possible that, like... Whether he put it up or not, considering that it was, like, not really well taken care of, that could have been why it didn't go off, right? Right. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if it had sat there. I mean, I just think it's a dumb place to leave a weapon. But also, I just, man, I just, I don't know. Paul, Paul is, I find Paul to be skeevy, in my opinion. I don't trust him. 
I trust him about as far as I can toss him. That's fair for now. Let's talk about someone even more skeevy, Sheriff Radcliffe. Um, Okay. So Sheriff Radcliffe asks Paul, they arrest Paul because it's his gun. That's enough to arrest him. They ask him to take a handwriting test. And what they ask him to do is they give him some of the Circleville letter, right? The Circleville letters. I give him some of the letters because the conjecture that the police are making is that the letter writer is the same person as the person who tried to kill Mary. Fair assertion. There's not that much evidence to connect the two other than the fact that they've both shown aggression towards Mary. Right. But that's beside the point. The police are making the assumption letter writer is attempted murder. There is, they are one. So they just hand him the letters. They're just like, hey, try and make your handwriting look like this. Exactly. They give him line paper. Yeah, they give him line paper and they say, copy this letter just like this. And for Sheriff Radcliffe, who is not a handwriting expert, he decides that's enough for him. And he officially charges Paul Fresher with the attempted murder of. Of Mary Gillespie. Again, these are two separate crimes. There's like a harassment and stalking element here with these letters, and there is a attempted murder directly. Attempted murder. They are two separate crimes. The police, by way of really just the fact that it's the same victim, have decided that the perpetrator is the same perpetrator. And then they subject Paul to this super fishy handwriting test. And they decide that he's the guy. (laughs) Um just want to be like Paul, baby. This is why you lawyer up. Because your lawyer would not have let you do this. And let me tell you, Paul's lawyer was bad. Um, so Paul so ha- he gets a lawyer now. Well, I mean, I assume he does. At least has a public defender because he does go to trial. Um, now, during the trial, the 39 Circleville letters that had been collected from various residents of the town, primarily Mary Gillespie, uh, were were kind of the primary source of evidence against him. Like they were, they they use the letters to to effectively say he is the one that wrote these letters. Therefore, he had motive to try to kill Mary. We prove that he is the letter writer. These letters show intent. Convict, right? That that's kind of the 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 train of thought of right. this trial. So Paul actually did have an alibi for. When the crime happened, um, he was at his home between 1230 and 4.30 that day, according to a neighbor of his. Mary actually testified at the trial. Um, She stated under oath that Karen, Paul's ex-wife, her, I guess, former sister-in-law, had told Mary shortly before the divorce that Paul could have been the author of the letters. You know, Karen, his ex-wife, said to her friend Mary, who was letting her live on her property... Hey, I think my ex-husband may have, you know, been the person that sent all those letters to you. She had suspicions for some reason. She basically planted this seed of suspicion in Mary's head. And of course, Mary being the victim, her testimony at trial was was pretty damning. Now, Paul refutes this and has refuted it for a long time or had refuted it for his entire life. Basically saying, well, Karen never brought that up during my divorce, during all of the hearings we spent in court. Now, you'd think that would have been incredibly helpful towards Karen if she thought that was true to bring it up in court because she lost custody of her children. She lost her home. She lost everything in her divorce. Wouldn't it be wouldn't it be convenient for her if Paul got locked up for life? 
wouldn't it though? So, so anyway, anyway, so, so Paul had an alibi, right? Like I said, um, a neighbor of him, right. a neighbor of his put him at his home between 1230 and 430. Uh, the prosecutor later refuted that witness, uh, by having someone else testify that they saw the sign there at 1130 AM when they drove by, which completely nullified his alibi. <laughs> Paul never testified on his own behalf. And he later said that that was one of his biggest regrets in, in terms of the trial. Yeah. To be fair, a lot of times though, lawyers, don't want to put you on the stand in your own defense for trial because it is just leaves too much to chance of you just getting torn to shreds. So that is like a very common tactic. That is not super weird, but I can understand how he would feel like maybe if I had spoken, something I said would have changed the outcome of the trial. But also I want to be like, so this person who saw the sign at 1130, this like super nasty sign, you didn't like, say something or do Call something about it yeah. like right like what okay right okay and, and we're actually going to come back to that day later in the story so okay. in the end despite the lack of physical evidence um really kind of the lack of motive too um paul was found guilty and and sentenced to seven to 25 years for attempted murder so remember though the letters were just evidence um he wasn't ever prosecuted for sending letters or anything like that. They were mm-hmm. just evidence in his trial for attempted murder. So you'd think that if he's behind bars and his mail is being monitored by the prison, the letters would probably stop or slow, right? Right. You'd be wrong. Yeah, Matt says. you're totally wrong. <laughs> because so the real letter that. writer is like, excuse you, don't take credit for my letters. They actually even become more frequent and more erratic. Um, one of the more serious accused the prosecutor of Paul Fresher's trial of murdering a pregnant woman who was carrying his child and threatened to dig up her and her unborn child if the police didn't investigate. What? Yeah. Um, some of the letters accused a local coroner, a guy by the name of Ray Carroll, um, the same one who investigated Ron Gillespie's death, by the way, right, uh, of being a pedophile, um, and oh. accused Sheriff Radcliffe of covering it up. Uh, there was a lot, like a lot of letters. These are just kind of like the highlights. <laughs> um, so the sheriff's office and police originally thought that Paul was still sending the letters from prison somehow, so they started monitoring his mail. They didn't find anything. They didn't find anything. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't find anything. They started monitoring the mail of his fellow inmates and his friends in the jail to make sure that he wasn't sending them through other people. They put him in solitary confinement, which is torture. By the way, it's actually torture. Uh, the letters keep arriving. How is he doing and this? They're like, well, well God damn it, right? <laughs> so while he's in solitary confinement, they take away. So Paul's like a uh, retrial. Uh, you, I, I wish, uh, they take away all writing implements and all paper. So they put him in solitary confinement and took away all books and all pencils and everything. So he has like literally nothing to do. They're literally 24 tor- hours a day. and no one to talk to. They are literally torturing this man and the letters are still coming. And they're like, well, he's just real crafty though. He's training the mice. I know it, the, the mind honestly boggles. So it, it, it doesn't stop. Uh, no. Can't stop, won't stop. Paul Fresher's locked up for the next seven years, which brings us to nineteen. He doesn't get out? No. What? The conviction sticks. And the primary primary reason that the conviction sticks is, again, this is a small town. The main police force is the sheriff's office. The sheriff refuses to reinvestigate. He is 100% certain that, that 
Paul is the one that tried to kill Mary and is the one writing letters. I'm having like flashbacks of Curtis Flowers. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely that's totally reasonable. So like I've made it up in my mind that you're guilty. Evidence be damned. Paul Fresher, as it turns out, is actually a model prisoner. He's a good dude. He actually him and the warden of the prison become pretty close because he's like just such a good dude. And the warden As a reminder though, in our second to last episode with the Cowden family, our friend there was also a model citizen in prison. So true. That doesn't mean much. That do- doesn't mean much. It doesn't. Mean, but I'll let you continue. Right. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't mean everything, for sure. But the, the warden of the prison was like, he can't be the one writing the letters, and the warden actually recommended uh, that Paul Fresh should be released on probation. Right. I mean, like, okay. The thing is, is he could have still attempted to kill Mary, right? Like, he could be the person who did that. The letters? No. Obviously, that is not him. Right. Totally. I don't think that there's necessarily much motive. Could be, though, is his gun. Um, But regardless, he's not the person writing these letters. Right. So... It's not him. It's not him doing the letter part. Right. Exactly. Um, So anyway, it's 1991. He's up for parole. I think I said probation before I met parole. Uh, He gets denied parole because people are still receiving letters. That's the reason they cited. (laughs) What? Yeah. They're like, you better stop writing these letters and then we'll let you out. And he's like, but I wasn't ever writing them in the first place. And you know that you can see that the warden said I didn't see um, Paul. So has Mary had any more attempts on her life in the meantime? No, no. Ma- other, okay. than, other than a few more letters, Mary's portion of this story is kind of over. There's okay. No more. Yep. Whoever wanted her dead, if they did indeed want her dead, has decided that one attempt was enough. <laughs> they were like, I, I rolled the dice once and didn't work out in my favor. So. Yep. Um. So. Here's something really interesting. Paul Fresher actually got a letter while he was in prison after his parole was denied. What did it say? Fresher. Now, when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay up. You don't listen at all. No one wants you out. No one. The joke is on you. Ha, period. Ha, period. Tell no one of this letter. I saw the paper. Great news. Great. The sheriff loved it. Ha, period. Ha, period. That's how they ha, ha. Um, okay. Do you believe ha, it now? Ha. Do you? Right. Do you believe it now? Do you? All in that same kind of blocky, like, right. all caps font. So, Paul's definitely not the one writing letters, right? Right. <laughs> um, now, at some point during his incarceration, some point, I think this was in the late 80s, early 90s, um, it was before the first time he was he was rejected for parole, a witness actually came forward uh, with, with contradicting evidence to Paul's case. Uh, it was one of Mary Gillespie's fellow school drivers who happened to drive along the same route as Mary, along the same road where Mary found the booby trap sign. Um, so this was just another school driver on the route that, that drove right, past right. before Mary did. And they didn't right. see a sign, right? Oh, this was this was at three p.m., just about twenty minutes before Mary drove by. Now, interestingly, where the sign was found, the the witness saw a yellow El Camino 
parked illegally on the side of the road with a large sandy haired man messing with something on the ground. And when the school bus driver drove by, they made eye contact. And then the guy acted like he was peeing on the side of the road. Okay. Do we know who this large sandy haired man is with a yellow El Camino? We don't have a, uh, a confirmation, but Paul Fresher, by the way, is not a large sandy haired man. He is a mid-sized man with very dark black hair, does not own an El Camino, uh, and also remember had an alibi for that whole afternoon. So the Right, right. Right. So the school bus driver is refuting the evidence that the prosecutor's expert witness said had when, when they said that the sign was there at 1130. This bus driver says it was not. They brought this evidence right. forward and came out in the open specifically to help Paul because they had contradicting evidence, right? Mm-hmm. The sheriff Who that man, though? The sheriff doesn't really investigate. I think, I think it's of just course. important. The sheriff's say. like, Psh. The sheriff says no. I don't know what happens in terms of like appellate courts, but, but in this case, you know, again, small town, the sheriff decides not to reinvestigate. Paul stays Paul stays in prison. That's just what it is. Right. Um, now, again, Paul didn't own or drive a yellow El Camino. You know who did? Who did? Karen's brother. Oh, interesting. Yeah, his ex-wife's brother. Uh, Karen also, at the time of Mary's attempted murder, was dating a uh, large, distinctive man with sandy-colored hair. Hmm. Uh, now, despite this, again, Sheriff refused to investigate. Paul was never given another trial. Sheriff Radcliffe remained convinced that Paul was the letter writer and, by extension, the attempted murder. This was also despite the fact that some of the letters were postmarked from Columbus, Ohio, which is literally halfway across Ohio from where Paul was incarcerated. So how is he postmarking? How is he sending mail from there? I don't know, man. The sheriff's like, I don't have to answer to you people. I don't have to answer to the public. He literally, like, he in the, he has interviews about this where he literally says, well, he was figuring out a way. He's crafty. What does that mean? You <laughs> right. can't just say that. You can't just be like, well, because I said so. Yeah, no, and that's literally what Sheriff Radcliffe is doing. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Quick tangent. Um since we're kind of at this point in the timeline, uh, Paul remained in prison, right? In 1993, mm-hmm. though, Ray Carroll, the coroner uh, who investigated Ron Gillespie's death and who the mm-hmm. letter writer specifically targeted, was arrested and, and charged. And said he was a pedophile? Yes. He was arrested and charged with eight separate sex crimes, including corruption of a minor, gross immorality, indecent exposure, and obscenity. And, uh, and the letter writer was right at least one of the times. Right. Well, got one, uh, and and he was he was convicted. So convicted pedophile. Um, so that's a thing. Makes you wonder. It it does a bit, right? That's an interesting one. So Paul Fresher actually remained in prison for another three years until he was paroled in 1994. Uh, he maintained that he was incident. Incident. He maintained that he was he an was, incident. He was he was a big old incident. Uh, but he was innocent in this incident. Yes, uh, he maintained that he was innocent, uh, and he served out the rest of his parole without any issue. Um, interestingly enough, when Paul was released, the letters also stopped completely. 
just before, yeah, I know. Just before he was released, the last set letter was sent in uh, in March of 1994, and it was literally just a rambling mess about Paul Fresher, Ron Gillespie's death, um, how he died, Mary's alleged affair. It had more info about Gordon Massey. It was just like this rambling kind of nonsense letter that, like, it's in the sources. You can read it if you want it. These letters are messes. Like, they're not even fun to read. <laughs> um, yeah. So... I think it's just interesting. He was released from prison and the letter stopped completely. In the mid 90s, after his release, Paul sent a letter to the FBI asking them to investigate Ron's death. Um, nothing ever came of it. He did, though, get the ear of an investigative journalist who uh, eventually got the circle of the letters listed as a feature on Unsolved Mysteries. Oh. Which is where some of our listeners may recognize this from. I Again, I wasn't aware of that until I was like, already hooked on this story and like well into it it's good so i apologize for that it was just like too interesting not to share the trail went cold also did an episode on this an episode on this case so and they're an excellent podcast so if you guys want to listen to another story on this they do i mean i haven't listened to this specific episode of theirs but i've listened to a lot of their other episodes and they are very good so check check it out folks right i like to think of us as a little bit of infotainment theirs is like it's very detailed so if you do want to know more about this i've kind of restricted it to the 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 juicy details that i found that i found especially compelling the trail on cold is super in-depth though i haven't actually listened to the full thing yet highly recommended so anyway the unsolved mystery team actually got their own letter after the episode aired really yes when Uh, did their episode air uh that is a good question and i had it in my notes let me find it and it's not technically a circleville letter it's a postcard Oh, it's a Circleville postcard. Yes, it's a Circleville postcard. I just wonder what made whoever it was stop. Stop. I know. You know? Like, why did they quit writing letters? Did they just get bored of it? Did they, like, get sent away to an institution? Did they move? Did they die? I guess they didn't die if they also sent this postcard if it wasn't, like, a copycat. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, they aired in 1994. So this was, this was all kind of interesting around the exact same time. Uh, do you want to know what the postcard said? Well, of course it just said, forget Circleville, Ohio, do nothing to hurt Sheriff Ratcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you L sickos will pay. You L sickos. (laughs) Yes. L like making it Spanish. L sickos. L sickos. Yes. Um, so why are they trying to protect? Why are they trying to protect the sheriff, though, when a bunch of their letters were talking shit about the sheriff? I don't know. Um, and I actually maybe the sheriff wrote it. I, so in any case, nothing else ever came up of this case. This is this is kind of where it ends and where the known details stop. Paul died okay. in 2012 with his conviction for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie still standing. Sheriff Radcliffe retired in 2013. Uh, he retired as the longest serving sheriff in U.S. history. And actually one of the longest serving elected officials in U.S. history. That's weird. Wow. Okay. He died actually in May of this year. Um, I couldn't find a cause of death, but uh, maybe it was COVID is what I'm saying. (laughs) Who knows? Um, Also, he's got to be old, right? He was very old. Yeah. He was in his, I think he was late 80s, early 90s. But yeah. Yeah. Sheriff Radcliffe retired with honors and uh, after putting... I think, I think personally, I think an innocent man away for 
half his life and ruining his right. life and right an unquantifiable. So tell way. me your theory, though. Tell so, me your theory. So, um, real quick, I need to throw some more just just details at you that are not wholly relevant, but just they stuck in my brain and hurt it. Um, okay. Okay. One of the articles I was reading had a comment section, which I think is always a mistake, but I was reading some of the comments. Um, and I ended up digging into this a little bit deeper, but David Longberry, the original suspect of, of, you know, they thought was writing the letters, Mary's coworker who they thought was like the first person. Like who's hitting on her. Who's yeah. hitting on her back at the very beginning. Uh, in 1999, he raped an 11 year old girl and committed suicide as a wanted fugitive. What the fuck? Yeah. So some folks seem to think that Longberry was the original letter writer. Um, and I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of tempted to believe this too. This is kind of where my like theory points towards. Um, they think Longberry was the original letter writer, the one who actually sent the first letters to Mary and, and, and Ron and, and them. And that Paul, F- Paul Fresher's counter spy letter writing actually did scare him into stopping. And that he did stop for a while. But after Paul and Karen's divorce, after the Freshers' divorce, Karen used him as inspiration to frame her ex-husband. And then he started writing letters again after Paul went to jail? Maybe. Or Karen kept writing letters, or it was both. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe they were both writing letters. What I think is interesting is after he gets out of prison and is officially released, the letters just stop completely, which makes me think that it was Karen, that it was Karen Fresher who was writing the letters. Because, you know, after her husband's out of jail, maybe she's too scared to write letters anymore. Maybe she thinks her work is done. I don't know. But either way, after 1994... The letters stop completely, and we still don't know who wrote any of them, actually, except that we know for sure that it probably wasn't Paul, because he was in solitary confinement. Probably wasn't Paul, right? Probably wasn't Paul. So when did this David die? Sorry? When did this David guy die? Oh, David Longberry committed suicide in 1999. So he could have been writing the letters, too. He could have been. Okay. So there's... I, again, I don't. I don't know that Karen was the actual letter writer. There's like no physical or tangible evidence to support that. Just like, you know, vague, vague motives and you know, conspiracy theories and these kinds of things. But right, Paul Fresher was also convicted on less evidence than that. So who knows? <laughs> right. I think we're. we're I wonder. Free to make, make guesses. Right. I wonder what the general hot goss around the town was like if most people at the time thought you know oh paul's definitely doing it if they just like jumped on the bandwagon and thought that that was the case or if most people thought it was somebody else because mm-hmm. i feel like i feel like when there's gossip around a town usually it's not a hundred percent false usually there's some kernel of truth oh, in yeah gossip that you hear right or like there's something that can be related to the truth so it'd be interesting to know what people like in circleville at the time and maybe even now you know if you have people who are like oh yeah my parents grew up you know hearing all about this kind of like what people think because i don't 
No, I mean, clearly, at least in my mind, it's clear to me that Paul was not writing letters yeah. <laughs> from prison. <laughs> that was not him. Do I think that he attempted to kill Mary? I don't really see that he would have much of a motive no, to do I it. No, I totally agree. Unless he, like, had, like, feelings for her and wanted to get with her and felt, like, jaded in some way. But I still somehow doubt. Yeah. It just seems very flimsy that it would be him. The um, the info used, the, the, the trial, there's, I mean, obviously it's a trial, so there's a lot of info out there about it if you want to look through the archives. Um, I'll, I'll try to pull some of them up and put them in the, uh, in the show notes, but, um, at least the distilled versions that I read from, from newspapers at the time, it was, it was in the trial. They, they stated that, um, he was angry at Mary for cheating on her husband and that she was, he was then also angry with Mary for letting Karen live on her property. So that was kind of like they were still using kind of the divorce and the original letter writer's motive as his motive, if that makes sense. But I just don't see. Right. Remember, though, Karen would know where Paul kept his gun. They were married and they had divorced that year. He said he hadn't touched his gun in several years. Her boyfriend or lookalike was spotted driving her brother's El Camino or lookalike of the El Camino and was parked very near where Mary was nearly murdered. She was also the person that planted the idea in Mary's head, which Mary used at trial to convict Paul that Paul was the one who wrote the letters. Remember, Karen was the one that planted that seed in Mary's brain that made Mary get up on the stand and go, I think it was Paul. That was kind of the biggest I mean, damning thing that happened at the at the trial for Paul. Right. I mean, I definitely feel like out of Paul and Karen, who, you know, stood to gain the most was Karen. Yeah. If she no longer had a home, she didn't have custody of her children, Um, you know, not sure what her job situation was like, like if she had been a stay at home mom up until then. So now she's like, well, I haven't worked in however long and like I don't have my children. Right. And I'm, you know, going through this really messy divorce and I'm having to live in a trailer on my like sister-in-law's property that, you know. Yeah, she did get her kids back. She got her she got her kids and the house back. So after Paul was arrested, so worked out great for her. It did, didn't it? Hmm. Worked out really good for her. Hmm. Mm, indeed. Interesting. Isn't it? Uh, this is this is just so it's so interesting to me for many reasons. For one, I feel like it would be easier if you actually tried to track down someone who is writing letters when they're sending most of them from within the town. Like surely they're in a town of that size. It's not that big. Right. It would to, not be that hard if you put some effort into it to figure out who's sending them. Right. Go to Postman Pat and ask who is sending a ridiculous, who's buying a ridiculous number of stamps. I guess the 70s. So everybody's buying thousands of stamps per week, I guess, to send bills and stuff. But still. <laughs> right. But also who's like, you know. That's the Venn diagram. Know, like, are of, you, are, are you noticing, you know, how this Mary's name Right. You know, just have people look out for this address, like say to the postman, OK, when you go to pick up mail or somebody's like dropping off mail, look for this address. Right. In this town to keep an eye out for it. And certainly you're going to figure it out sooner or later. But I feel like they didn't care. Right. Well, because they, they just 
thought that it was Paul. And before that, they didn't know about it and didn't care. Right. Like the intersection of people who know these things would care about these things and is going to the general store to buy a lot of paper and envelopes and to the post office to buy a lot of stamps is a small, there's a small intersection there. And I feel like somebody had to know like who was writing the letters, right? Right. Well, and like we were saying, it's a small town. This isn't like, you know, Manhattan. This isn't, you know, millions of people living in an area. This is a small community. Like, like you're saying, you're going to recognize. Yeah. Right. You're going to recognize, you know, oh, Joe is constantly coming in here to buy letters and to buy stamps to, you know, do this. This is weird. Like maybe this, you know, Joe Schmo is the one who's harassing Mary and her family. Yeah. I yeah, don't know. It kills me that we don't know. I, know, I don't we, like we don't mysteries. Know. Yep. That's why I, I don't was, like not knowing. That's why I was on Unsolved Mysteries. If you don't like mysteries, then. then I'm in the wrong business. You're on the wrong podcast for sure. Torture myself. I need to start a show called Solved Mysteries. Right. We'll make a TV show called Solved Mysteries. And, and it'll, it'll just be. It'll be the least exciting nonsense because. Every, you know what the conclusion is. They solve it every time. Just skip to the last five minutes. It's fine. Right. Yeah, it's fine. Oh. Well, that was interesting. I don't know. Yeah. No, I hope I hope that was interesting for the listeners, too. That was that was one that just kind of like piqued my interest in, 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 and held on to it. I see why Unsolved Mysteries kept it up, but I know a lot of people, a lot of our listeners probably watch Unsolved Mysteries and other such TV shows. So I hope this wasn't uh, wasn't totally, totally boring or... Or botched for you. I did. I have not watched the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Full disclosure. I've also, like I said, not listened to any of the other podcasts because we. At least I try not to do that when choosing sources. I'll leave. I'll leave them in the show notes. But I didn't actually like use them as a primary source just because I didn't want to, you know, taint our telling of the story. But uh, I highly recommend. Highly recommend looking up. Uh, looking up the podcast we mentioned mentioned and uh, unsolved mysteries because it's a trail went cold yeah the trail went cold and 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 unsolved mysteries it's a classic show classic i've never seen a man with a firmer forehead oh yeah unsolved mysteries not the trail went cold right. i don't know anything about their foreheads i don't either but... anyway that's a wrap yeah <laughs> on yeah. that note thanks everyone uh stay safe um we're uh we're at mysterypodcast.com, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, we love you very much. Not too much. Just enough. Not enough. Enough.